was several years ago that uh, a gentleman who goes to our church here decided that he was going to make his 25th wedding anniversary really special. So he went out and he bought him some plane tickets to Hawaii, made the hotel reservations, told his wife about the trip. They went to Barnes and Nobles, got some books on Hawaii, started talking about all the things they would do, plan their uh, trip in detail, started shopping for some different clothes and some things they'd take with them. Took about 10 days to pack, took things in and out of the suitcases, took off for the airport, went to the newsstand, got them some magazines for the long trip. They were so excited, a couple of bottles of water, and then they stepped up and they handed their tickets and found out that they were counterfeit. He decided he'd save a little money by going to a discount ticket broker and found out that it wasn't a broker, it was a scam artist. And they did not go to Hawaii. Now, that was disappointing, maybe an understatement, but not nearly as disappointed as some people are going to be on Judgment Day, according to Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 21, you'll find it there on the back of your worship guide. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, let me say it, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I would think that in a, size, a crowd this size, and the folks who are listening to me at our other campuses and on the internet, there's somebody who's hearing my voice right now who's holding bogus tickets and they don't even know it. So this is important that we look at the scripture. Eternity hangs in the balance for perhaps even many today who are considering this hard saying. So let's not shy away from it. Let's not be afraid of it. Uh, let's embrace it fully. Let's go down deeply into it because what he's saying is, is there going to be some folks on judgment say, day who will say, well, Lord, didn't we give thousands of dollars to your cause? And didn't I teach a class? Maybe somebody would even say, Lord, I went on a mission trip. And maybe perhaps even somebody would say, I worked in vacation Bible school. Surely that would get you into heaven working in vacation Bible school. <laughs> But seriously, you can do all that and bust hell wide open. That's what he's saying here. And that's a hard saying. Let's first of all, though, quickly say what he's not saying. He's not saying that you can be a Christian, that you can enter into a right relationship with God and somehow lose it because of something that you've done. That's clear in the Bible. In fact, I don't know of a doctrine that's clearer in the, in the Bible than what we call the eternal security of the believer. That when God saves us, he does a really good job. And we didn't do anything to deserve to be saved. We just received God's grace. And so there's nothing that we can do to deserve to stay saved. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell how many sins that you commit and then all of a sudden you're no longer a Christian. Neither does it give a list of really big sins that if you break one of those, you don't go to heaven. But if you do just the small ones, you make it. It's not in there because there's no formula like that. There are some who would say today, but wait a minute, Steve, that doesn't make common sense to me that you could be a Christian and do really bad things and still go to heaven. Well, the friend, there's nothing common about God's grace. 
And the grace that saves us is the grace that keeps us. And there's a lot of scriptures that we could look at, but that's not really our focus today. But very quickly, just to name a few, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 30 says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This scripture says that the day you become a Christian, the day you enter into a relationship where Jesus is both Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit seals you. In other words, he keeps you safe when? Until the day of redemption. It doesn't say until the day you sin a really bad sin or until the day you sin a, a, a number of sins that would somehow disqualify you. It says we are sealed by part of the Godhead Trinity until the day of redemption. And another scripture says that that Holy Spirit is given to us by God as an earnest payment. And we know what an earnest payment is. It says that the person who started the transaction will finish it. No less than the Holy Spirit of God is given as an earnest payment and he seals us until the day of redemption. Some would still say, well, I just don't understand. If I were God, I wouldn't let people get saved and then continue to sin. Well, I am so glad you're not God. <laughs> let me just kind of go on the record on that one. Can I just get out on a limb? His grace saves us. Or the scripture that says in John 10, 28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's fairly clear, isn't it? Eternal life, never perish. No one can snatch them. Or 1 John 5, 13, it says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might, what? Know that you have eternal life. So we don't have to wait till the end of time to know that we're saved. I'm not talking about uh, somehow getting saved and then something happening in between now and glory day and all of a sudden you get surprised because you lose what you had. Listen to what he says very carefully in the passage we started with. He will say to them on that day, what? I never knew you. This is not about having and losing. This is about bogus tickets from the day of purchase. Now what's happening here is Jesus is at the very height of his popularity and there are very large crowds. If we already said, God was not very, or Jesus was not very impressed with the large crowds. He's gone to the other side of the lake to get rest and the people have gone all the way around the lake and they are meeting him there and the crowd has gotten bigger because Jesus is feeding people and he's doing miracles. And besides that, he's saying some things they've never heard before and they're intrigued with it. But Jesus decides that it is time to have a DTR talk with the crowd. Well, you know what DTR are, defining the relationship. Every young man that is in a romantic relationship, there's one thing that strikes fear in his heart. Because <laughs> he knows it's coming. Somewhere along the way, he's going have to have to have a DTR with that gal. At some point, she's going to want to know about his serious intentions. She, at some point, is going to say, where do you see this relationship going? At some point, she's going to want to know if it's an exclusive relationship. She's going to want to know if the young man has visited any jewelry stores yet. <laughs> this is a DTR. Let's define this relationship. Is this the real deal, or are you just an enthusiastic admirer? Are you just visiting? Are you planning to stick around for a while? 
And sometimes in response to that DTR, the young man will say, hey, well, let's just move in together, which is code for I'd like all the benefits of this relationship without any long-term commitment. It's a lie. And Jesus is having that kind of DTR with the crowd. And the reason is he knew their hearts. That's what it says. It says a big crowd came all the way around the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he wasn't impressed because he knew what was in their heart. He knew that in that crowd there were more fans than there were real followers. A fan goes to a lot of games and he might even paint his face and go to his home and he spent money to have a signed jersey hanging on his office wall. And he knows about all the players. He knows all about their stats, but he doesn't know any of them. He never gets in the game. He never breaks a sweat. And you let the team lose a few games. And his enthusiasm goes down. You let him have a few losing seasons and he will jump to another team or perhaps even another sport where he can have a a, a greater vicarious experience because that's all it is. It's a vicarious experience. He's not really on the team. He's not a follower. He's a fan. How can you tell if you're a fan or if you're a follower? You know, you can go on a a website now, and some of you know this, some of you use it all the time, where you can actually, when you get sick, you can start putting your symptoms onto this website, and the more symptoms that you give, the more accurate the diagnosis. I mean, you you throw a symptom in there, and you just throw one symptom in, and it could be anything from malaria to common cold, but you tell them whether you have a fever or not, and then it gets a little more narrow. You tell them whether you're nauseated or not, or you're having trouble sleeping. It gets more and more narrow. The more accurate symptoms that you put in, the better diagnosis. How do we know if we're a fan or a follower? Well, Jesus gives us insight here, and he says, if it's only talk, you might be a fan. Not everyone who says, merely says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you raise your hand in service doesn't mean you're a follower. Just because you said the sinner's prayer doesn't mean that you're a follower. Talk alone, according to Jesus, is not enough of an indication to give an accurate diagnosis. Because talk is cheap. Remember when you were in elementary school and somebody slipped you a note and says, I like you, do you like me? Check one. Yes, no, maybe. You get a yes box back from somebody, don't go out and buy you a a wedding gown yet, okay? Because they may have checked that box with three other people that day. Because talk is cheap. Part of the problem is that we mistake what we say with what we're actually doing. And Jesus says there's got to be a match. You actually have to do the will of the Father. And let me stop very quickly and again say what most of us who are here understand that doing the will of the Father does not get you into heaven but doing the will of the Father shows you have the relationship that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. Works do not produce salvation but works prove salvation. The Bible says by their fruits you will know them. That's how you diagnose it. Part of the problem is that we have confused the word believe with the word faith. The word believe in the Bible is a synonym to faith, but for some of us, when we use the word believe, we're talking about intellectual acknowledgement. We're talking about believing something between our ears. And when the Bible talks about it, it's talking about trusting 
are putting a reliance on. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're trusting him to do two things. First of all, we're trusting him to be Savior. We're trusting that what Jesus did on the cross and that alone, not our church membership, not our theology, not our effort, that alone gets us into heaven. It's a free gift of God. But we also are trusting him or relying on him to be our Lord. That word Lord means boss. It means authority. It means that everything in our life, our feelings, our emotions, our intellect, the things that we read, the advice that we get, everything is judged by him, not him judged by them. And that's what it means to believe is when you rely on, it's like a chair, it's not enough to say, I know that chair can hold me up. Belief is when you sit down. In the scripture in James 2, 17, it says this, it says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Works do not save us, faith does, but faith is dead unless it has works. Faith is a spark, but works is the oxygen that fuels our faith. In, in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, there's a chapter in the Bible, and some of you are very familiar with it. If you're not, go back and read it today, would you? Hebrews 11. It's known as the hall of faith. And in that, it talks about people who put their faith, their reliance, their trust on God. And then it tells a story. It tells what they did. It tells where they went. It tells how they responded. Friends, if you don't have a story that's connected to your faith, you don't have faith. Faith by itself is dead. It's only as it has a story as it is worked out in our life, as it is lived out in our life, does it truly become real faith? Look back at our text, Matthew 7, 21. He who does the will of the Father. The declaration of Lord, Lord, if it is all alone and not rooted in reality is not faith, it's a delusion. Go with me to the psych ward, and here's a guy who thinks he is a superhero. Here's a guy who firmly believes in his heart of heart that he can fly without an airplane. That is not faith. That is delusion. And anyone who declares, Lord, Lord, and yet doesn't trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save them, doesn't trust Jesus and Jesus alone to be boss, authority, final word on all topics, that's not faith. It's delusion. A true declaration of Lord, Lord will mean that Jesus will actually be Lord. A true decision to follow Christ creates movement. One day Jesus is walking by the Sea of the Galilee and he sees the Zebedee brothers and he looks at him and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And he invites them to follow him. Scripture says they immediately dropped their nets and they followed him. Now, I don't think that that's the first time they saw Jesus. I don't think that they were mending their nets and Jesus came along and he said, follow me. And they go, oh, he has a nice voice. Looks good, like his toga. Hey, I think we'll just forsake our family, leave the family business, drop everything right here and go follow him. I don't think that happened. I think Jesus came to Capernaum where those boys lived and he started teaching. 
And he taught like no one they had ever taught. They were, they were hanging on every word. He was talking about forgiveness and he was talking about what the real kingdom of God was about. And it wasn't anything like they'd ever heard in their life. And I think they laid awake at night and they tossed and they turned. I think that as they broke bread together on the Sea of Galilee and even while they were waiting for the catch to come in, they talked and they debated about it. And then there came a day when Jesus knew that they had enough information to make a decision. And it was on that day he started walking by them. And he looked at those two boys and he asked them to turn their back on their entire life and follow him, not even knowing where all it would take them. And the Bible said they dropped their nets and they followed him. That's not a fan. That's a follower. See, the people who were chasing Jesus around the Sea of Galilee for miracles and for free food, they all went home at night. The disciples did not. When Jesus got on the boat to go to the other side, when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem where he said, I'm going to lay my life down, they went with him. They were followers. When you say you're going to follow, it means there's movement. When Matthew was already had rolled the dice, had already burned his ships, decided to betray his own people to become a tax collector, he'd already lost everything for what he had done, and it wasn't working out too well. And he was empty, and he too heard the words of Christ. He too had a lot of sleepless nights. But then there came a day when he said, uh, Matthew, leave your tax office, come follow me. The Bible says that he dropped the coins and he followed him. A true follower of Jesus goes where Jesus went. And we all know where Jesus went. Jesus went to a cross. Cross is real pretty today. We put stone on it, we polish it up, we put it on a gold or a silver or a platinum chain but it is an instrument of death. It is an electric chair of that day. And if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to finally end up where Jesus went, and that's a cross. That's an invitation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian who died in a prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ, said it this way. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In John, the 12th chapter, in verse 24, it says, truly, truly, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know how you can tell if somebody's a follower? There's fruit in their life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the character of Jesus Christ. And it came about because they died. Have you been around dead people very much? Unfortunately, my job causes me to be in those situations. I've been there in the back bedroom when the person has struggled their last breath and they die. There's a difference. There, there is a, there's a line that is crossed when that person dies. I, I've been there when the funeral home rolls up and they carry the body to the funeral home. Can't remember how many funerals I've done over the last four decades. And I've noticed some things about dead people. Dead people don't care what other people think. They just don't. Dead people don't care how much money they have in the bank. 
Dead people don't worry about whether or not someone's treating them fair. In summary, dead people no longer are concerned with self. Jesus calls us to come and die. There's a guy that all of us have seen if we've watched any television of sporting events. This guy's at all the major sporting events. He's at the NBA championship that's being played right now. You'll see him this uh, next fall at the World Series. He's there for the Super Bowl every year around February. He usually has a pretty good seat, and he's holding a sign that says John 3.16. Have you seen him? There are days that I feel the Lord calling me to that ministry, that particular ministry. <laughs> Never has opened the door yet, but I'm, I'm available. That's it. We all know John 3.16. It talks about what God did for us. But it's hardly an invitation to follow. It is a, a proclamation of the catalyst that makes it possible for us to follow. I want to see this guy hold up Luke 9, 23. I want to see him hold up Luke 9, 23, because that's the full story. The full story says, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, the instrument of death, daily and follow me. Now that goes against a consumer mentality in Christianity today, an Americanized version of Christianity that says it's all about us and come and give your life to Christ because it's going to make your life better. Come and give your life to Christ because Christ wants to do some great things in your life. And there's a real heresy out there that is a prosperity gospel that says God wants every Christian to be rich and he wants every Christian to be healthy and, he, and you won't be successful unless you come to him. But if you come to him, you'll be successful, magically successful above everybody else. No problems, no pain. It's a lie. It's what I call uh, snuggy theology. You remember the snuggy? It was about being comfortable that you, you, you could sit there and have a blanket with sleeves on. I, by the way, I actually got a Snuggie one Father's Day, a Texas Ranger Snuggie. And then the moment I put it on, I realized I already owned a Snuggie. It's a bathrobe put on backwards. That's all it is. Sold 20 million of it, though, because Americans, they like to be comfortable. And so there are a lot of itching ears for a kind of theology that says it's all about us. And that's not what the scripture says. Scripture says that we come to him and it's about him. And it's about his lordship. See, it's not that fans don't want a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just that they want a relationship with Jesus on their terms. Where Jesus is their consultant. So Jesus can give advice anytime that he wants to on any topic and we'll consider it. If it makes sense to us, we might do it. Or worse still, where Jesus is our concierge. And he just, makes, he just smooths things out for us. He just gets things done for us. And that's how a fan views Jesus. Instead of Jesus being Lord. But be careful here because the emphasis here he's saying is it's not just about declaring Lord, Lord. It's not just about saying the sinner's prayer. It's actually about following him. It's actually about him being Lord, about being boss. But sometimes... We create activity because he says you must do the will of the Father. Sometimes we create activity that's really a counterfeit of doing the will of the Father. 
one thing about Satan is anything that's mentioned in the scripture, Satan has a counterfeit for it. You know, God tells us to love and Satan tells us to lust. I was, I was out at Love Field. At, have you been to Love Field since they've remodeled the whole thing and they've got the new gates and all the vendors there? They've got right in the middle of Love Field, they've got a, a place where you can buy fake diamonds. And you, I had a flight delayed recently and so I just thought I'd go look at the fake diamonds. And I'm man, these things are cheap. They're affordable. You can get a diamond the size of a milk dud for your wife. <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> I was there for a long time. And I'm thinking, there's no way that she's going to believe this thing's real. I don't even believe it's real. I'm looking at it. This does not look like a real diamond because it's not. And here, here's the fake Here's the fake of doing the will of the Father where we get involved in doing religious stuff. And by the way, the bigger the better. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles in your name. But notice what it says there in verse 23. He says, you practiced lawlessness. In other words, a few religious flamboyant deeds are not gonna cover up for the fabric of your life your relationship with your families and how you do business and how you spend your leisure your practice is lawlessness these huge every once in a while stuff you do at the church or the knowledge that you accumulate about theology doesn't cover up the stink of the practice of lawlessness in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, in verse 27, he says it this way. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In other words, they're trying to cover up, counterfeits. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which are on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and what? There's that word again, and lawless." it's the practice of life and a few religious expressions are not going to cover that up when I was going to, to church when I was a kid you got a box of offering envelopes at the beginning of every first Sunday of January and, and I remember where I used to go and take and place it in my bedroom and before you go to church on Sunday you grab an envelope, they gave you 52 envelopes you grab an envelope, you take it to church you not only put something in it but there were little boxes for you to check eight little boxes and that was the whole thing that for you to turn in that envelope with the eight boxes checked that had things like it on it read my Bible this week that's fairly easy, you could read one verse on the way to church so you could check the box. You hear what I'm saying? Didn't have to be a practice of your life. It didn't have to be changing. You could just read the verse, check the box. Real hard one though was Wednesday, uh, Tuesday night visitation that you attended visitation where you showed up at church and got the name of a person you didn't know and surprised them by knocking on their door and, and saying, are you going to hell or not? That one was harder to do. <laughs> But see, here's the truth. You could check all eight boxes. Anybody, a parrot could check all eight boxes. It didn't mean you were a follower of Jesus Christ. It was just checking the boxes. 
And that's what religion can become a lot of times is where we just go and we figure out, okay, tell me what the rules are. Tell me the boxes that I have to check, and I'll check the boxes. And what it does is it gives us a false sense of security to think we have a relationship that we do not have. Notice what he said to him, I never knew you. This is not about you doing something every once in a while. This is about us entering into a unique relationship. We're trusting me and me alone to be Savior. By the way, I think it's real evident when people have trusted him as Savior because these are really grateful people. People who really understand that they're sinners and they really understand the price that Jesus paid so they didn't have to be an unforgiven sinner. The Lordship thing is not a problem because they're extremely grateful. And they're not perfect. They still make mistakes. They still struggle, as Paul the Apostle said, to do the things they knew that God wants them to do. But there's a change that starts taking place, and it's a change not by tacking on outside religious activities. It's a change that comes from the heart because you're in love. In John, the third chapter, the Bible tells us that one of these scribes that he one of these Pharisees that he describes there in uh, Matthew, the 23rd chapter, he comes to Jesus at night. His name was Nicodemus. Now, I think it's interesting that when it tells that Nicodemus came to Jesus, it said that he came at night. Isn't that interesting that it says that? Of course he came at night because he's a fan. He's watching Jesus, and he, he may have even made a decision that Jesus might be who he said he was, but he's not ready to to go all in yet and so he comes at night because if he comes at night it doesn't affect his reputation if he comes at night there are no consequences he doesn't lose his job if he comes at night he says Jesus I'm really interested in what you're saying tell me more and then Jesus lays it on him he says Nicodemus if you become a follower of mine you gotta start over and all this religious big religious stuff you're doing and all the scripture you've memorized you get no points for that. You get no credit. There's no transfer for this. You start over, and, and you have to be born again spiritually. You have to start from scratch. And you have to be totally dependent on what I do for you, not what you do for God. And if that happens, Nicodemus, what's going to happen is God's Holy Spirit's going to get a hold of you, and he's going to start changing things. And he says, Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But you can see when it blows the tree, you can see the result of it, and, and if you truly follow me, the Holy Spirit's going to come inside of you and people are going to begin to see some changes. And they may not see the force that's changing you, but they're going to see some changes that are there. Fast forward to John, the 19th chapter. And Jesus has died on the cross and his body is hanging there between heaven and earth. And there are two people who step forward boldly to claim his body and to prepare it for burial. And one of them is Nicodemus. First time he came to Jesus, he came at night, but he's not coming at night now. He's coming in the middle of the day. He's moved from being a fan to a follower. He's serious now. He doesn't care who sees him, and he doesn't care who knows. And, and it's interesting to me, it's at the time, not as the height of his popularity when he was a fan, but it is when he is least popular, when everybody has forsaken Jesus, that Nicodemus steps forward into the light. In 1 John 1, 6, it says this, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. 
You can make a decision to follow Jesus in the darkness, but you follow him in the light. And that's why one of the first things that Jesus asked every new follower to do is to stand up publicly and to be baptized in the light. And when we're being baptized, we're pointing to our reliance, our trust, our belief in him. We're saying, I'm counting on what Jesus did on the cross and that alone. I'm symbolizing the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm dying to my self-control. And I'm rising to walk in a newness of life. Some of you have made a decision to follow Jesus in your heart, but you've never followed him. The first step of following him is to be baptized. First thing some of you need to do as you leave here is to go to the Connection Center. Hey, listen, I've been a Christian. I've been a, a fan for a while, but I need to go public now. I need to get serious about this. That's the first step. But then there's so many other steps, and the real proof that you're a follower and you're not a fan is that you keep his commandments. There in 1 John 2, 3, it says this, by this that we know that we have come to follow him if we keep his commandments. Now, guys, let me just be honest with you today. I didn't teach this passage to get everybody to worry about whether or not they were saved or not. If you're worried about whether or not you're saved, I've got good news to you. God wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved. If you're waiting on him, you're walking backwards, okay? You can declare, Lord, Lord, today. And you can depend on what he did on the cross to save you, and he will save you. But the proof that you're truly a follower is things will begin to change. Can't help it. It changes everything. The question is not perfection. The question is the practice of our life. And if there is a doubt today, God bless you for being honest. Because that's the beginning. You cannot get where you need to go unless you're honest about where you are. Facts are our friends. But here's what I know. The scripture says we can know, we can know, we can know. This is not about stirring up doubt. This is about being sure. I don't want to be on my watch that somebody shows up one day at judgment. And to say, they never told me that you can talk a good talk and you can be a member of an organization and not have Jesus. They told me. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that salvation is free. We thank you for a grace that covers all of our sin. But thank you, dear Father, that you call us to a true relationship, a true commitment, that it's more about than jumping through religious hoops and it's more than just saying a, a short prayer and then going on about our business and remaining as Lord of our life. Help us, dear Father, to be honest about our relationship with you and then help us, Father, to be grateful in a way that causes us to be changed by your power each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.